Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. So as I talk for the next period, I would like you to be in a posture where you can be very attentive with your whole body and also very comfortable so that you're not stiff. And if you need to shift around, it's okay. I like the process of giving a talk on a retreat because I don't come prepared. And then by the time Norman gives his talk, I start to get nervous. <laughs> because I know when his talk ends, my talk starts. And um, one of the things that's nice about not having, uh, you know, sitting and preparing for a talk in the way that I often do uh, in Toronto is that I can give a talk based on what comes up for all of us, that I intuit but also what comes up um, in the interviews. And uh, so during the interviews, there were a few themes that were showing up. And so uh, I thought I would speak to them. Um, But the one piece that I did bring from Toronto is a little passage that I read last week uh, at Center of Gravity, which I think ties in very much to what Norman was talking about. And I'm going to start with that and come back to it a few times. It's on the subject of home. And as some of you know, I like to talk about home a lot because I think of this whole practice as really a homecoming, a way of coming home to ourselves and also to recognize that this thing that we call home is not separate than us. It's not outside of us. It's not a place you can come back to um, other than present experience. And in a way, home is also not something you can think about. You either feel home or you don't. This comes from Anne Michaels' uh, latest novel called Winter Vault. Every action has a cause and a consequence. I do not believe home is where we're born, or the place we grew up, or a birthright or an inheritance. It's not a name or blood or country. It's not even the soft part that hurts when touched, that defines loneliness the way a bowl defines water. It will not be located in a smell, 
or taste or talisman or a word. Home is our first real mistake. It's the one error that changes everything, the lesson you could let destroy you. It is from this moment that we begin to build our home in the world. It's this place that we furnish with smell, taste, a talisman, a name. The word talisman refers to something that protects us. And it's interesting to to think about home as something that protects us or something that's a very deep resource that we can rely on. And also the way she ties this into a mistake, an error. I know from most of you that what brought you to this practice is dukkha, a sense of, of lack, Uh, discontent, pain, stress. It can be defined in so many different ways depending on the context. But this sense of incompleteness, I think, that, that hovers around. And we try various things and eventually maybe we start to burn out on shopping, uh, lovers, you know, whatever it is you turn to to, to feel home. And for me, I started practicing meditation because I was totally lost and anxious, and I didn't feel in myself a kind of resource that I could rely on. And I could tell you that whole story, but I won't now. Uh, but, But I have noticed that the meditation practice for me has really been in phases. And the first phase is sitting down and just being anxious that this this thinking mind that cannot stop uh, telling a story about every sound and every feeling and every emotion always creates some anxiety. And in a certain way, that anxiety is not just a kind of a psychological disorder, but it's a kind of existential anxiety. It's at some level this knowing that we have that's deeper than the stories that those stories are not really the way things are. That we're sort of going around in circles, giving ourselves the illusion that this is how things are. And then we learn the hard way, usually from other people, that things are not really the way we think they are. Other people are not really the way we think they are. And then there comes a a time, I think, for most people in meditation practice where some of that constant thinking starts to give way to a deeper stillness. And we can call that the beginning of concentration, but we can also call that intimacy. It's the kind of opening to, 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 to the way things actually happen. I like the word uh, intimate uh, in Japanese. Uh, it's the word mitsu which refers to a zabuton and the cotton that's inside a zabuton and how close the cotton is packed together. And this, this is a very beautiful uh, uh, phrase. And if you ever look at the way the, the character is done in calligraphy, it's just gorgeous. You, can, you don't even have to know what it means, and you know what it means.
So one of the uh, uh, themes that often comes up uh, in this practice is, and, and this is what I think so, some of the themes that I was picking up in the interview, is that you know, so much of the time this, this storytelling mind is always looking ahead to find home or the next practice, or the next layer of the practice, or even some of you might already be planning the next retreat, or you're planning your life so you'll never end up on retreat again. (laughs) (laughs) And then you start to recognize that so much of what we do on this retreat is completely meaningless. I mean, walking meditation. Have any of you walked yet and said, what is the point? (laughs) Last year we were here walking in the snow and uh, Kurt and Liz have have a kid who's I think around eight years old named Ben. And um, it was winter. Ben looks out the window and says, what's going on? (laughs) We were doing long walks and there were these people just walking slowly (laughs) by the house. And so Liz said, Ben, those are zombies. (laughs) And then throughout the retreat, he would count them. I saw four today. (laughs) The inner experience, hopefully, is not (laughs) zombie-like. Although it is a kind of empty... Um, But I think that one of the points of walking meditation is that it has no meaning. One one of the reasons why we focus on the breath, um, in yoga the breath is called ajapa mantra, which means the mantra that has no meaning. And one of the nice things about focusing on the breath is it has no meaning. And the interesting thing about giving up this need for meaning is that it settles the storyteller simultaneously. And the paradox is that underneath that, things can become meaningful because the meaning is not superimposed uh, from the top, from this control tower. So I would like to to, uh, give you a koan, a little dialogue, a little riddle, that maybe can uh, bring some of this to life for you in your practice for the rest of the retreat and maybe the rest of your life. According to Norman, it might be short. You might not even show up tomorrow. (laughs) That's just an assumption. (laughs) Listen carefully. Dizeng asked Fayan, where are you going? Fayan said, around on pilgrimage. Dizang said, what is the purpose of pilgrimage? Fayan said, I don't know. Dizang said, not knowing is most intimate. This is one of the greatest phrases in meditation circles. Not knowing is the most intimate. Not knowing is the most intimate. Where are you going? 
around on pilgrimage. Well, isn't this what we're doing? We made a pilgrimage from Toronto uh, to Penetanguishene. You made a pilgrimage from walking outside to this cushion. And when you're sitting, uh, we recognize as meditators that the real pilgrimage happens inside. Norman runs pilgrimages in India. And if you ever talk to people when they come back from the pilgrimage in India, usually the first way they describe their experience of India is not about India. It's about what happened inside. And so when we're sitting here focusing on the breath, we're actually on pilgrimage. And we're on pilgrimage focusing on sensations, images, fantasies, theories, perceptions, non-perceptions, and so on, all the way through until that whole meaning-making machine starts to settle. And where does it settle? Here, home. Many uh, traditions use phrases as their meditation practice. Um, we talked last night about metta practice. Um, um, the, the Jewish tradition and the Muslim tradition use a lot of phrases. The Hindu tradition uses these amazing mantras to get people focused. When I was a kid, um, probably around eight, maybe from like about eight years old till about 12, I loved going to synagogue. It was my favorite thing to do. My parents didn't understand it. Um, <laughs> And uh, I loved chanting. I would go there, and I liked putting on a suit, which I still do, believe it or not. And, and, I, liked, and I could read Hebrew. So I just liked reading the Hebrew and chanting. And uh, it was one of my favorite things to do. Um, you might be surprised that in meditation practice, when the mind gets concentrated, and as we get quiet, we start to bring in the mind again but in a different way. And we can bring in phrases. Uh, we were all on a, in a workshop with Martine Batchelor, who suggested this phrase, what is this? And in a way, you could say, what is this, is related to not knowing. We're asking, what is this, to undo what we know about it. Likewise, the same is true with metta. We can't really practice kindness for somebody if we're filled up with ideas about them, especially for neutral people and people we don't like. If there's a part of yourself that you don't like, you cannot practice metta and simultaneously not like that part of yourself. Something has to give. Where are you going around on pilgrimage? What is the purpose of pilgrimage? And then this amazing response, I don't know. And usually when you hear a question like that, the student gets whacked or, or is embarrassed. I don't know. So honest. And then the student is surprised that the teacher confirms this. I don't know 
is the most intimate. And then the, the student realizes something. I was touched this morning, somebody in an interview uh, stopped themselves and then recognized that something they said wasn't honest. So what I just said, what I said earlier was not honest. And I was really touched that, that in the stillness, in the experience of what we're doing, you can be courageous enough to say, oh, not, not honest. <coughs> you don't get punished for not being honest, but maybe in a way internally, when we're not quiet, we punish ourselves for not being honest. I'm a terrible person. That's not honest. Even as a simple statement. But what happens if your pilgrimage practice is your meditation practice? Is your practice of not knowing? Of not knowing. I don't know. Not that you don't know because you don't know, but you don't know because you know that you can't know. So in this story, Dizang is asking Fayan not about pilgrimage, but about practice, about life itself. In a way, when I first heard this koan, the way I heard it was, where are you going? Or where am I going? Where do you think you're going? What do you think you're doing? I mean, I don't know about you, but, but sometimes when I start getting still, and then have some experience of calmness, and then I come out of it, and I start you know, thinking and planning and so on, all the thinking and the planning seems a little bit ridiculous. Like what, what is the point? I mean, I have a weird life. You know, I, I come and I teach here, and anywhere I get invited, I go travel to. I'm about to go to Washington and New York. And, and then sometimes I wonder, what is the point of all these castles being built? And, and, and the stillness helps me recognize what the point is. Shinru Suzuki used to say, uh, the point of practice is to discover what the point is. To discover what the point is. And it's much more helpful to discover what the point is from the place of stillness. Where are you going? This world is fleeting, evanescent, impermanent. Our relationships are impermanent. The businesses we're building are impermanent. The practices we're building are impermanent. The books we might write are impermanent. Nothing secures us from the outside. Sure, our basic needs can get met and need to be met so that we can do this practice. You need food and shelter and so on. But you can have food and you can have shelter and you can have you know, family and still not be home and still be going, going off, accumulating more and more and more. So like any good koan, people have written commentaries for centuries on this koan. 
And I just wanted to mention a few of these, these commentaries. Here's one commentary. Usually they're just as short as the koan, and they become a new koan. <laughs> Mostly because no one understands what they're talking about. The way, so the way, the word for way is Tao, or path. The path is vast and wide. How could it ever be a matter of knowing or not knowing? Knowing is arrogant. Not knowing is stupidity. The way is far beyond both of these. This is actually an excellent commentary because when we say not knowing, the mind immediately goes knowing and the binary opposition is not knowing. Okay, then I don't know. And this commentator is pointing out is not knowing doesn't mean not knowing. Not knowing means wisdom. It means being able to take what you know and know it fully enough that you can put it in brackets. It's being able to take the stories we have about ourselves and really know them and don't get rid of them, but just be able to put them in brackets. A lot of people say about children, you know, how, how awful that kids growing up in cities never see the stars. And I've had this thought about adults and stillness and silence. Amazing how so many of us can, can grow up and really never have an extended period of silence or never even have the experience in our own mind and body of not thinking. Even just a taste of not, not being caught up in that. And then yet we're told in this koan that, that not knowing is most intimate. Wisdom only knows emptiness. And emptiness is, is nothing. It's not a thing. So wisdom doesn't actually know anything. Wisdom is not knowing. The wisdom that is what you are is, is not knowing. Not knowing. How many relationships have we strangled because we've known so much about the other person and still can't accept them? I've done this so many times. So clever, I can interpret what's going on for somebody, and I can actually understand them better than they can understand themselves. <laughs> I think this is true even more so as people with the education that most of us have. Most of us came into therapy or uh, one of the helping professions because we've suffered and we've, we've earned some balance from a lot of hard work. And the shadow to that is that what we also earn is a kind of way of seeing ourselves and the world that has given us balance. 
But every good idea eventually becomes a bad idea. And so every you know, story that we then come up with to explain our place in the world to give us some security, as Norman said earlier, changes. The conditions change. The stories also need to change. But sometimes we don't want them to change. And so we, we tighten around them. And then we have what we often refer to as a paradigm, which is a view. In the Aripariyasana Sutta, the Buddha says, uh, people cling to their view. People cling to their place. Actually, the way he says it is, people love, delight, and revel in their place. People love, delight, and revel in their place. I love my viewpoint. I find metta hard to do with enemies because I love my view of them. I, I don't want to give that up. I, I need them to be the object of my hatred. Otherwise, I actually have to feel something. And, and I, it's much easier just to, to scapegoat. Families do this. When a family can't integrate... Uh, something that needs to be integrated, um, it's much easier just to, to, it's probably most of you in here, you just, the black sheep or whatever. <laughs> and when we're busy doing these mental gymnastics to create security, the, the things that matter the most escape us entirely. And we, we miss a connection to, to the mystery and the depth of this life that can't be known. I was talking earlier about phases of meditation and the first phase really being kind of anxiety, you know, and, and just busy, busy, busy. And then the second phase being some stillness which I think is what motivates us to, to really go into the practice. And then I think the next phase is when you really get that taste of silence, you really start to see how your mind works. You can really see something that you can't know from books and from chalkboards or from courses like this. You have to drop underneath the course. So real knowing is beyond knowing and not knowing. It's beyond that. It's not, oh, well, I don't have to know that. It's to know something so fully that you can put it aside. Here's another commentary. This is a good one, too. In walking, in sitting, which we've been doing all day now, just hold to the moment before thought arises. Hold to the moment before thought arises 
Look into it and you'll see not seeing or not knowing. You'll see not knowing. Look right before a thought arises and you'll see not knowing. And then put it to one side. It's an interesting commentary. So, so when you see not knowing, don't even hold on to that. Just put it to one side. When you direct your effort like this, the rest does not interfere with meditation. And meditation does not interfere with the rest. It's interesting, isn't it? That, that when you can see that place before thought arises, know it, but don't hold on to that either. I don't know about you, but whenever I have a moment where suddenly something falls away, and there's still immediately, how can I keep this going? This is what it's all about. I'm a good meditator. I'm very spiritual. I'm going to get beads on my wrist, and then I'm going to teach. And an hour later, you're having fantasies about you know, how much dana the teachers must get and how you could get a smaller place and probably live like that. It's all good. Wouldn't it be nice to be more like Norman? So when... So this commentary is very interesting. When that stillness happens, know it. Know it fully. And then put it aside. Because if you don't put it aside, everything else is going to interfere and be an inconvenience to your meditation practice. But if you know what not knowing feels like, then whatever moves through you does not interfere. And then you don't have to make these strong distinctions between the meditation practice and your daily life between thoughts and no thoughts. Um, someone wrote a poem about this commentary. This is what happens <laughs> over centuries. Two lines. I'm going to read you two lines from this poem. It's referring to the breath. Some of you might hear in the background the beginning of the Satipatthana Sutta. Here. Let it be short. You can guess what the next sentence is going to be. Or let it be long. Stop cutting and patching. I would interpret that now as cutting and pasting. <laughs> Going along with the high and along with the low, everything levels itself. If your breath is long, don't make it short. If it's short, don't make it long. If what you're feeling is high, let it be high. If what you're feeling is low, let it be low, and everything will take care of itself from its own side. You don't need to overcome what you're feeling. You don't need to change what you're feeling. Instead, we're on pilgrimage with our circumstances. 
I'm on pilgrimage with sadness. I'm on pilgrimage with irritability. I'm on pilgrimage with restlessness. This is what it's like to go on pilgrimage with boredom. Everything levels itself out from its own side. Being willing, willing, normally talking about interest, and I, and I think of this as being willing, being willing to really look at sadness, anger, irritability, joy, really to know joy, and really to, 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 to open up to what's happening with empty hands means not knowing, unknowing. Sometimes we can do this. And, as you've noticed from this uh, retreat so far, sometimes we can't. Sometimes we sit on our cushion and the only thing we can do is just hold on. And, and this is the first phase of a practice. But the more you do it, that phase you can move through a little smoother. Because you know what it's like to hold on, and you know that whatever you're going through is changing. It's changing. And in 20 minutes, it's going to be something else entirely. And sometimes the only skill we've got is just to put our body there. Would you believe there's another commentary? (laughs) (laughs) I saved the best one for last. This is a commentary. We're used to commentaries that take place between teachers and students. This is a commentary that takes place between parts of the face that are having a conversation with each other during the practice. So this is I want you to visualize, okay? So you're, you're sitting, meditating, and parts of your face start having a conversation with one another. This is how it goes. The mouth says to the nose, I do the eating. I do the talking. What could be more important than that? So, why are you above me? (laughs) And the nose says to the mouth, quoting an old Chinese proverb, Among the five mountains, the central one occupies the honorable position. So why, the nose goes on, addressing the eyes, why are you two above me? And the eyes reply, We are like the sun and the moon. We have the power of illumination and reflection. But the question is, eyebrows, why are you two above us? The eyebrows don't know anything. (laughs) They have no power whatsoever. (laughs) 
can't eat, they can't smell, speak, see, hear, or think. And yet they're the highest. The eyebrows reply. If I could do like two voices at the same time. (laughs) We're embarrassed to be above all of you. And we have no idea why. So, so that's the ending of that poem. But someone else commented on this. <laughs> and here's what they said. In the eyes it's called seeing. In the ears it's called hearing. But what is it called in the eyebrows? <laughs> Then, after a long silence, the teacher said, In sorrow we grieve together. In happiness we rejoice together. Everyone knows the useful function, but no one appreciates the supreme power of the useless. Nobody appreciates the supreme power of the useless. Walking meditation (laughs) is completely useless. It's useless. The eyebrows, for the most part, you can pluck them and get rid of them, and it won't change your life. It might change how people perceive you. Some people will be more attracted, some people less attracted. But, but they're useless in so many ways, if you even have any. Boredom also seems useless. But when we start taking interest, even in what's useless, what we're doing is practicing not knowing. We're taking interest in something that is not what we know. And usually we only want to be interested in something we're already interested in. And I think what's difficult about the meditation practice is it opens us up to everything and asks us to be interested in whatever's here, not just what you'd like to be interested in. And so as a reaction, you can disagree. And you can say, well, I don't want to be interested in that. I'm just going to be interested in this, and then you can only think about X, Y, or Z. And then your meditation session ends, the bell rings, and you're probably tired. Your body's probably yelling at you, because you're not at ease. You're not in flow. You're not on pilgrimage with what's showing up. You're not home. Home, as Anne Michael said, is also being open to your mistakes, to the way that you fail, and also to your success. to be open to to joy and, and to sorrow. 
I like this line about the eyebrows where they say, um, in sorrow we grieve together. Did you know that there was this companionship going on? (laughs) And in happiness we rejoice together. Did you know about that? And then when happiness shows up in our life, we can be happy. And when sorrow shows up, we can grieve. And we can grieve, and it's not so bad. Why? Because we're, we're home in it. Even though it's uncomfortable, we're home in it. I remember when I was doing more psychotherapy, working with people who had a meditation practice was often very different than working with people who didn't. Because people who had a long-term meditation practice, when they felt sorrow, they could stay in it and keep talking about it without jumping out of it so fast. You don't have to follow them all. They, They feel sorrow and they're fully in sorrow. Most of the time, not, not always. But this seemed to be the skill that, that I saw, or the resource that I saw that people had, that, had been, that was being cultivated quietly in the background, and that you can't see from the outside. One of the worst parts about retreat is when you get home, nobody notices. You get home and you, oh, I had this experience but nobody can tell from the outside. You see this a lot. People go away, they go to Burma and go do a retreat for three years and they come back. And within a few weeks, you can't tell. It's not that, because you can't tell. It's in the inside. Until there is sorrow. Until there is pain. And then we see how people's character have been shaped by this practice over years. And then we can open to what is really going on. Agitation, the list goes on. Sorrow. I was at a funeral two weeks ago and for my friend Jerry who passed away. As I was walking to, you know, into the building, I remembered that I love funerals such a weird thing to think when you go to a funeral. Because amidst of the sadness and missing this person, an actual funeral, when it's with people who really miss somebody, uh, even the flowers at funerals look sad. And I, I love it somehow. Everybody is open. Because they're, they're really, they're in their feeling body. And when someone near you passes away, You can't not think about your own impermanent life. I think when we're feeling, when we're intimate 
without knowing. You can't go into a funeral, I know how this all goes, and uh, I know where Jerry is right now. (laughs) He's watching over maybe about 200 feet to the south. It makes us humble. What is more humble than the eyebrows? The eyebrows are like the most humble. And they're on pilgrimage on your face for this lifetime. These are the ones you've got. We can learn something from the eyebrow. They just follow every emotion. When you feel sad, they don't try to get happy. Dizeng as Fayon. Where are you going? Someone's asking you this question, right? Where are you going? Which I like to think is, where do you think you're going? It's just my mother's voice. (laughs) Where do you think you're going? Around on pilgrimage. And it's not on pilgrimage. There's a sense of it's moving through the world on pilgrimage. Not, I am going on this particular, I'm going around on pilgrimage. I'm moving through my life as a pilgrimage. And the teacher asks this really pointed question. What's the purpose? It's not saying, what's the purpose of a pilgrimage? What is the purpose of moving through your life as if it's a pilgrimage? And the student responds, I don't know. I don't know what the purpose is. Somebody says to you, you know, what is the purpose of your life? I don't know. I've tried this at parties before. People say, Who are you? I don't know. How'd you get invited here? <laughs> and I think the student is a little bit fearful, you know, saying, I don't know, and waiting for the teacher to come back and, and you know, strike him in some way. That's not what happens. The teacher confirms him. I don't know. Not knowing is the most intimate. Not knowing is home. Home is the most intimate. Home is wisdom. The source of your wisdom is in your home. And your home is not a physical place. It's this. Many of you, you know, we're, we're new to knowing each other. Some of you, maybe like Ronit, has been known me for a little while now and has heard so many talks. 
And they all seem to come down to the same thing, which is that, that these koans or these dharma talks are, are designed for the student, for you and for me, to realize something that was already there the whole time. And that little piece of logic is in every single koan, in every dharma talk. If you listen closely to what Norman's saying, Norman's teaching, it's a reminder that this wisdom, this metta, this, this silence, has, it's always in us. It doesn't leave us. And the meditation technology is just creating the conditions for this to arise. Concentration is not something you get to. Enlightenment is not something you get to. Intimacy is not something you, you get to. It's something that arises organically out of conditions. It's home. And not knowing is the most intimate and the best path home, which is not separate from you. Can't go home. Because you're there already. You're here already. Like the eyebrows. Like the birds. Like the wind. Like sadness. Like calmness. This is all allowed into the house. So let's sit for a couple of minutes. <laughs> 